Father God, we praise you. We are blessed. You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Lord, we open your word now with reverence, Lord, and we submit ourselves to your word that you may teach us what you have to say. No matter how difficult or challenging it is, Lord, would you build us up with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll open up to Luke chapter 4. Um, we're about nine weeks out from Easter, and so I thought uh, it would be great for us to go and have a look at the person of Jesus, who he is um, from the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4 um, through to the cross and the resurrection. And, and what you're going to see through Luke is who Jesus is and what he's come to do, and of course for us, what it actually means to truly belong to God. And so uh, from Luke chapter 4, we're going to start uh, uh, and read from verses 16 this morning through to verse 30. Uh, Jesus has uh, been born, he's been baptized, and he's been through the wilderness temptation. He emerges in the power of the Spirit, and Luke uh, begins with his journey to his hometown in Nazareth. And it says in verse 16, And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the soul of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he wrote the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, 
he went away. Well, what makes a great sermon? I realise that's a terrible question to ask when you're about to preach a sermon. But what is it that makes a great sermon? I've been listening to some different preachers recently, and one man in particular named Robert Smith Jr. He's a, a black American preacher in his late 60s, and he starts every sermon with the same prayer. It just goes like this, even now, Lord, even now. Even now, Lord, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. And when I first started listening to that, I, I thought to myself, even now what? Even now what? What is, what is he saying? And I realized what he was doing is he's welcoming the presence of God. God, speak now. Even now would you speak to us. And then he goes on preaching the most beautiful words from the text, thoroughly biblical sermon. He's a powerful uh, preacher in this awesome kind of rhythmic black spiritual style that they have. And by the time he's finished, uh, he's singing at the end, which is very common in black spiritual church culture. They sing. And so he'll be like, on Friday morning, the sky had no light. Like that. That's how he'll finish. And the earth reeled and rocked and the veil turned into that. And on Saturday, the cross stood like a fool. <laughs> but then he'd be like, but I want to tell you, Sister Diane in the fourth row. <laughs> on Sunday morning, he arose. All glory to his name. Do you know him? He ends every sermon with worship. And it's a little bit odd for us. We're not really sort of used to that, but it's beautiful. Every sermon ends in worship. There's this authentic praise that's coming from his heart. There's all kinds of things that we can enjoy uh, about preaching, heartwarming stories, theological explanations, funny jokes. But a great sermon is a sermon that fulfills the purpose of preaching. The purpose of preaching is to preach the meaning of a specific biblical text in such a way that it reveals the presence of Jesus to you by the power of the Holy Spirit, and with His empowering grace, we the hearers apply that word to our lives. We worship. And so the preacher preaches the intended meaning of the text, not something that we just want to say. I've done that many times. The Holy Spirit is working through the words of the preacher and in the hearts of the hearer, revealing Christ and His work to us. But if we, the hearers, do not apply the word through his empowering grace, then we may have heard beautiful sounding words, but in the end, it's just a missed opportunity. In other words, we cannot really think about a sermon, great talk. We cannot be in awe of great preaching unless in the preaching of his word, the presence of Jesus is revealed to us in such a way that it moves us by His grace to apply that word to our lives. And so why am I talking about preaching instead of actually preaching? Because in the text, this is what we actually see. We're looking in on a religious service where response to the word preached is central. See this? Jesus is the preacher under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, he's baptized, he's emerged from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit, and he's preaching the Word of God in the synagogue, reveal what? 
his presence in the hearts of the listeners. And so in this text, we see four things. We see an opportunity missed, why they miss it, the danger of missing it for too long, and an opportunity not to miss. An opportunity missed, why they missed it, the danger of missing it too long, and the opportunity not to be missed. Firstly, the opportunity missed. You see that Jesus is the synagogue of his hometown of Nazareth, and he's handed a scroll. And, and they didn't have chapter and verse um, back then. It was just one long scroll, and so Jesus just kind of unwound that thing and found uh, to what we know, the part of what we know is Isaiah chapter 61. And he read from verse 18 in your text, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolls it up and he sits back down in verse 20 and every eye is fixed on him. This happens in proclaiming God's word. Sometimes the Spirit of God is at work in such a powerful way that you can hear a pin drop. And that's a moment to listen. That's a moment to be tender-hearted because the special grace of the Lord's presence is here and wants our attention. And Luke uses this as a specific device to capture today's reader. He wants to say every eye was fixed on him so that our eyes would be fixed on him because what is coming next is very important. Verse 21, Jesus says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So you see this, that you have the preacher, Jesus of Nazareth. He's anointed by the Spirit of God. He's preaching the Word of God to reveal the very presence of God among them, himself. How amazing it must have been to listen to those words. It says that he began to teach. Not all of the sermon is in there, but he began to teach about this thing, about these things. And this was a people who desperately longed for these words because they were a people under political oppression, under the oppression of Rome. And they were waiting for a promised Messiah to deliver them out of this oppression and bring them into the era of God's favor. The era of the Israelite. And so Isaiah 61 was a foundational text of all their hopes and expectations. And so these words would have been very comforting for, to them. It would have spoken into all their fears, all of their hopes. And so their initial response is amazement in verse 22. They marvel at him. They marvel at the, these beautiful sounding words. It says gracious words. In the Greek, it's literally beautiful words. But as we read by the end of this sermon, you know, uh, at verse 29, everyone in the congregation just gets up in outrage and they push him out of the synagogue and they lead him down to a cliff to throw him off. And when you threw somebody off a cliff, it was so that you could stand at a great height to stone them. This is like all the hosannas of Palm Sunday resulting in the abuse of the cross on Good Friday, but all within an hour. This happened from the beginning of a sermon to the end. Initially, great sermon, they said. Great sermon, beautiful sounding words, but all it turns out to be is a tragic missed opportunity. It's a tragic thing to miss it, to miss the opportunity to worship. Uh, after our Christmas Eve service last year, a man came up to me after my sermon and he said, Thank you. He was excited. I loved the way that you spoke. 
beautiful words about religion not being the answer, because that's what I spoke about, but being, it being about a relationship with God. And I agree with you. It doesn't matter what religion you are, Muslim, Buddhist, Catholic, as long as you're spiritual, we'll all be with God in the end. And I realized that he had accepted my message. He'd received my message without really realizing what it meant. And Jesus realizes the same thing. They're accepting the wrong thing. They have freedom in mind. They have all of their expectations to be met in mind. They do not have worship of God in mind. But the Messiah of Isaiah 61, he stood before them. He said, it's all about me. The Spirit is upon me. And all of this, deliverance from oppression and captivity and blindness and poverty, all shall be done by me. But they missed it. They missed the opportunity to worship God. Well, why did they miss it? Why did they miss it? Well, there's always a clash that takes place in God's word being proclaimed. There's always a clash. There might even be a clash. In fact, there probably is. In fact, I guarantee there is a clash taking place right now. Luke puts emphasis on the fact that Jesus comes preaching under the anointing and the power of the Spirit. Verse 14, and Jesus returned from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. Verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach. And whenever the preaching of the word goes out in the power of the Spirit, there's always another power that's going on in the hearts of the listeners, a spirit of the age. The Apostle Paul talks about the spirit of the age, meaning the prevailing ideas, the attitudes, the values of the world that lure people away from the truth. That's the spirit of the age. This is the real battle that's always going on in the preaching of God's word, the clash between the Holy Spirit coming to bring the truth of God's presence to bear and the spirit of the age. And perhaps you would expect this, if, perhaps if you went into the, the city and stood on a box and started to preach, you would expect the spirit of the age to be there, but would you expect the spirit of the age to be in a place like this? Would you expect the spirit of the age to be in a religious type place, like even a church? But Jesus finds the spirit of the age here in the synagogue in two ways, and they're often these two ways, they're often very unique to religious environments. The first is the spirit of familiarity. Verse 22, their response, is not this Joseph's son? At first, they marveled at his words when they had freedom on their mind and when they thought this person might be able to give them what they wanted, but then they have this sinking feeling, this sinking sense of hesitation and disappointment set in, is not this Joseph's son? You see, this is Jesus' hometown. They've known Jesus for 30 years. They, they watched him as a boy. And they're desperate for liberation from political oppression, but they've sized Jesus up. He's no King David, who overcame Goliath and reigned over the golden era of Israel. He's nothing like that. You see, their spiritual sensitivities are tipsy. They're inebriated. They're drunk. They're under the influence of the spirit of the age, a few too many times seeing and hearing the same thing over and over again. Samson, the Old Testament, he developed the spirit of familiarity with God, much power of God passed through that man's body, didn't it? 
He overcame Israel's enemies. But after a while, Samson got so used to the routine of the Philistines coming upon him and him just standing up and wiping them all out that he started to think that he could do whatever he wanted. He took forbidden women. He became the life of the party. But Samson's familiarity with God meant that one day he woke up and his strength was gone. No great work could be done through him because he had become weakened by his familiarity with God. This happens with us too. This is the comment that Mark and Matthew on the same account here say about Jesus' sermon in his hometown of Nazareth. He could do no mighty work there. And you could say this about the church in the West, that it's incredibly hindered by the spirit of familiarity. You see, Jesus, he builds his church on the foundation of what? Faith. Faith. Trusting in his powerful work. But just one too many times, we may have said in our hearts, is not this just Joseph's son? Can he really do what we hope he will do? In other words, I believe that the church has got disappointed with Jesus. This is why we go to other things. This is why we preach other things. The church has got disappointed with him. He didn't come through like we wanted him to. He didn't satisfy like we hoped. Not many people got saved. The worship times got boring. The church gets religious and no longer responds to the word of God with faith. It's all too familiar. You know, no no great work can be done if you do not believe that the one God sent to deliver you from spiritual poverty and blindness and captivity and pressure is Jesus. If all he is to you is just Joseph's son. I wonder if Jesus disappoints you right now in your life. Are you disappointed? Maybe you're deeply unsatisfied right now. Maybe you're back in the, in the cycle of sin and Jesus just doesn't seem enough to make you stop, to make you leave it all behind. It's just Joseph's son. It's not the son of God in glory. You know the right thing to do, but you have no will to do it. Apathy has set in. Maybe in your ministry, you have become disappointed. But here, under the anointing of the Spirit, Jesus preaches the word into the spirit of familiarity, saying, this is all about me, all of this, liberty, freedom, life, deliverance from the oppression of the age, all will be done by me. I do not disappoint. And that's a word that requires a response of faith, or Jesus can do no mighty work. Last weekend, uh, the staff team here and I, we went for a few nights away down to Port Vic, and on Friday night, we been out fishing, we came back and we sat around the lounge room and everyone had to play the song that defined them in their early 20s. And so we played the song and everyone just had to sit around and listen to the song. And it was amazing to watch everyone as their song played. Everyone else is kind of a bit disinterested. But when their song played, it was amazing to watch. A bit of hot flush. A bit of beaming in their face, as all the memories of that song that defined them flooded back. And amazingly, all the lyrics were still in there, even though they hadn't listened to it for so long. 
The lyrics were deep in there. And this is what we need to do when we become too familiar with God. We need to sing the song that defined us. The lyrics are in there. They're very familiar. They've been in there for so long, but we haven't sung it for a long time. Our face doesn't beam with the glory of Christ anymore for all that he has done. And so if you come back and you sing the song that defined you, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he's come, that he's laid down his life for you, that he's cancelled your debt, that he's freed you from oppression, he's freed you from captivity and spiritual poverty. If you start to sing that again, you will find that the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Have you become too familiar with God? Has apathy set in when the Son of God in glory is in your midst? Second reason why they missed the opportunity to worship was because of the spirit of entitlement. He says in verse 23, Doubtless you will quote to me the proverb, and heal yourself. What we've heard you do in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. The people are thinking, you owe me. You owe us. Give us a miracle. Prove it. They sit in their pews and they say, okay, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, then, you know, you owe us a sign. But then in verses 25 to 27, which doesn't make much sense to us, these historical accounts about their ancestors way back years in Israel's history, doesn't make much sense to us. To them, it made a lot of sense. Jesus exposes the entitlement of the people. He points to two examples where because of their spiritual decline, God actually bypassed them and poured out his grace on Gentiles. So in the time of Elijah, there were many widows in that time, but God bypassed them because of spiritual decline, and he poured out his comfort on a Gentile woman. In the time of Elisha, a messenger of God because of their spiritual decline, many lepers in Israel, but God bypassed those lepers, and he went and he poured out his cleansing on Naaman the Syrian, a Gentile enemy commander. And so he exposes here their entitlement, the message to them was loud and clear. God is not beholden to anyone. He is no man's debtor. And no one person is more entitled to God's grace than anyone else. Uh, the Bible says that the only thing that all people are entitled to is the wages of sin, which is death. But do we not live in an age of entitlement? Don't we live in an age of entitlement? I deserve more. We often think in our grumbling and complaining that we deserve more. Jerry Bridges says an attitude of entitlement prompts us to grumble about blessings not received rather than being grateful for the things that we have received. There's something terrible, terribly important that we must realize about God. God owes us nothing. Not salvation. He doesn't owe us that. Not healing. Not a new job. Not more money. Not a holiday or a husband or a wife, not a pumping church. God owes us nothing. Everything God gives is by His grace. I can't even tell you how much that's been blowing up my thinking this week. I'm such an entitled man. When things don't go my way, I grumble, I complain. When things go well for other people, I think it's unfair. I'm an entitled person. But everything that I have, everything that I have, has been given to me by God. The, the, the spirit of entitlement is the spirit of this age, isn't it? 
Don't we just look around, you see everything on TV, you see everything in the media, everything that we see in our culture, we listen to in friends, we go out, we hear it all around us, we see, us all, see it all around us. People are entitled. Paul says to Timothy, in the last days, people will be lovers of self, will be lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful. They'll be gripped by the spirit of entitlement. I deserve more. As I said, the clearest um, test for working out whether you have the spirit of entitlement is how you respond when God blesses people that you don't like. When things fall into place for other people, the heart and the mind, it goes into overdrive with self-pity because we believe we deserve from God what they're getting. And take a look at this, what happens. It says, when they heard these things, what are these things? The things about God blessing the people they don't like, the Gentiles, the people that they have disdain for. They rose up and they drove him out of the town and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. They believed that no Gentile was worthy of the blessing of God. They believed that God's promises were only for them. How dare Jesus suggest that God loved the nations? I wonder if we find ourselves doing this in our own way. God's favor is on my family. It shouldn't be on their family. He should be on my family. Or churches think, you know, we have more of the Spirit. We have more of God's blessing. But when we think... Uh, that we've earned our place because of our contribution in the church, our years of service, our giving, our position in the church. We've earned this. And poorer people, people of disadvantage, and they don't deserve much of our attention or time. In fact, it's probably their fault. It's probably their fault. It's the choices they made, and, and that's their fault. A lack of compassion from people from other nations who are desperate, and we think that's just their problem. That's just their problem. The underlying view and prejudice that is harbored in our culture towards indigenous people, yeah, I'm saying it, it's true. It's, it's there in our hearts. How much do we think we are where we are because of us? Everything has been given us by the grace of God. You weren't born into the situation and the family that you were and the privilege that you have because of you. It's all because of God's grace. He's poured it out on your life. All through Israel's history, they didn't understand this. They neglected the outcasts of the day, of their own people. They neglected them. They neglected the needs of surrounding nations because they were entitled. And Luke's going to go on and say this in chapter 10. He includes Jesus telling a parable about a man who gets beaten up by a robber and is beside the road and a priest and a Levite walk past the man beaten on the side of the road and they look at him and they have no mercy for him they cross the other side of the road and they keep walking a good Samaritan comes and attends to his wounds Jesus's point is when you're religious when you're entitled you have no mercy no mercy you only think about yourself you only think about what you're entitled to. He goes to a rich man, and the rich man wants both in eternal life, and he wants earthly riches. He wants it both. He's an entitled man. He goes away in, in, in dismay when Jesus points out that to follow me is to make it all about me. 
The spirit of entitlement has us only thinking about ourselves and God's blessing of us. Jesus is the only one who was actually entitled to glory. He was the son of God come from heaven. He's standing before them in the synagogue, but he did not count his equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, he took the form of a servant. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He emptied himself out. He was entitled. He's the son of God in glory standing before them. And yet he has descended. He has emptied himself. He come and he stood among the people. And he's offering his grace to pour out his grace. You see, Isaiah 61, he's saying, it's all about me. Everything's about me. I'm entitled to all the glory of heaven and earth, but I've emptied myself. I've come to the poor, to the blind, to the captive, to the oppressed. Now, why do we, why do we miss the opportunity when the word of God comes? Why do we miss the opportunity to respond with worship? I have to tell you that religious environments are breeding grounds for familiarity and for entitlement. They're breeding grounds for that. And so we ought to pray, Holy Spirit, have your way. Make your way through this spirit of the age that lives in our hearts. We're so familiar with you. We've lost our reverence and awe. We're so entitled. We think that we deserve your grace. This is the reason they missed it. What's the danger of missing it too long? It's the danger of not responding to the word as it comes. Verse 30, it concludes, but passing through their midst, he went away. Did Jesus perform some kind of disappearing miracle? Yeah, I I don't really know. Was the crowd just so thick that he just slipped away unnoticed? I don't really know what that means. The most important thing here in this verse is that he went away. And as you go through the Gospels, there's no evidence that Jesus ever returned to Nazareth. And this is the point. When people reject the word of God, God removes the word from the people. It was true of their ancestors. He just said it. In a time of famine, in a time of leprosy, because of their spiritual decline, God removed the word from them And he poured out his grace on the Gentiles. When people reject the word of God, God removes the word from the people. This is a hard saying that maybe only some can hear. Some will object to you saying, are you saying you can lose your salvation? That God will remove the word? I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it's the application of God's word to your life that makes all the difference between belonging to God or not. It's the application of the word. We love explanation. We love to listen to explanations of things. We love to say, great talk, great sermon, but it's only the application of God's word of grace that saves. There's a difference between belonging to God or not. Uh, Luke is so desperate to communicate this. He includes Jesus' parable of the sower. That the seed, which is the word of God, it goes out on different kinds of soil. Some falls on the path and it's trampled underfoot. Some falls on the rock, fell on the rock and it grew up and it withered away because there's no moisture. Some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and it choked it. Some fell on good soil and it yielded a hundredfold. 
So when we ignore the voice of the Lord over and over again, when we reject his presence saying, I'll put it off and I'll do it another day. Great talk, but I'll put it off and I'll do it another day. Satan has snatched the seed away. Testing times have got in the way. The cares of this world have choked you. And the principle is this, is that when people reject the word of God, God removes the word from the people. And that's the danger of the missed opportunity to respond to his word with worship. And so what is the opportunity not to be missed? We'll take a look at the passage that Jesus read from Isaiah 61. It's in verse 19 there, the last line. It says that Jesus has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, the year of the Lord's favor was a defining law in Israel that set up all the way that they, that they lived, economically and socially. This was a, a law that kind of established the way that they lived. You can read about it in Leviticus 25. It was called the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, the, the debts, all the debts of the land would be returned to the original owner. So if you owned land, the way it worked was you worked on a lease arrangement. You would lease land from an original owner. You would have it for 50 years. You would yield the crops and make a living for yourself in your years of work. And then when 50 years came back, you would actually return that land to the original owner. And this was actually a law that was set up to protect poor people, to protect people that are not done well. It actually allowed there to be once in your life, one moment kind of in every generation where you could hit the reset button. Just imagine if Visa or MasterCard did that for you. They just decided to wipe the debt clean. That'd be awesome. But all throughout Israel's history, this is what they were supposed to do for each other, cancel each other's debts. All throughout Israel's history, they never once acted on the year of Jubilee. They never did it. Every time, what would happen, every time it would come to the 50th year where all the generation had to cancel the debts and they'd give the land back and kind of make it equitable for the poor people, they would change the rules. They would delay it. They would bypass it so that they could hang on to their wealth. And that's why all throughout the Old Testament, you see God rebuking the nation of Israel for treating the poor, for neglecting the poor. They did not have, it showed that they did not have the love of God in them. And so by my calculation, if, if Isaiah 61 was written seven years before this moment in the synagogue, there should have been 14 jubilee years and there had not been one that they acted on. Not one half century that had shown faithfulness to God and his people. 14 times 50 year periods that proved every time that they deserved the wrath of God. And that describes my life too. Not one phase of my life have I loved God and loved people as I should. And yet here Jesus was, he was standing before them saying, I have come to bring you eternal jubilee. I am coming to do what you could not do for yourself, what you refuse to do for each other, to truly cancel debts, to hit the refresh button. I wonder if you know this, you had a debt to pay to God that you couldn't pay. Jesus came into this synagogue to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, living in the era of canceled sin. We don't deserve it. We're not entitled to it, but he loves us so much that he's done it. He's done it for us. We have a new beginning in him. We are living in the year of his favor, of his grace. This isn't something to become overly familiar with. This isn't something to become overly entitled about. This is something to be in awe of. Jesus has done it. 
and the people of the synagogue are too familiar, too entitled to receive it. And just as you see happen partially, that Jesus removes his word from them, he passes through them, he leaves them, so this will be ultimately for those who reject him. The year of the Lord's favor will end. Now notice this, when Jesus first quoted Isaiah 61, in verse 19, there it says, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he actually left off the last sentence, that if you look up Isaiah 61 now, you will find it. The last sentence is, and the coming day of his vengeance. It must have made them wonder why, when they heard it. You see, they knew their scriptures very well, they're religious people. They knew their scriptures very well, must have made them wonder why. What they didn't really understand at this point in time was that Jesus' coming to the world would be a two-stage coming. The first time he would come and he would proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He would proclaim eternal jubilee, a time of canceled sin, a time where people could respond to the word of God with faith and experience all the blessings of eternal jubilee. That's the first time, but the second time would be a day of his vengeance. This is a day that is still to come. It's a tragic day. But when people reject the word of God, God removes his word from the people. What I mean is it's a tragic day for those who do not respond to his word. You see, God does not force response. God does not force himself upon people. He has come to declare the year of the Lord's favor and he is looking for those who will respond to his word of grace with faith. So the time is now. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Apply his grace to your life. It's all the difference between belonging to God and not. I found myself confronted with this truth. Perhaps about 10 years ago now, where my life was in perilous danger of having no real testimony of God's grace, his evidence of his spirit in my life, even though I'd grown up in the church. Even though I'd heard it all before. I was a, a young man who grew up, who at times loved the Lord, but became apathetic and familiarity and entitlement, self-righteousness gripped my heart. And 10 years ago, that led me into sin, and I had a free-flowing attitude towards sin. No evidence, no testimony of God's grace in my life. And one night, God's, by God's grace, His Word came to me, not through a preacher, actually, through the grace and the blessing of the Holy Spirit. It was like the hand of God pressing down on my body, and I couldn't get out of my bed for two days. I wonder where I would be today if by His grace, His empowering grace in His Spirit, I didn't reply and I didn't respond. But the Lord held His hand down on me, helped me to bring my sins into the light, and by His empowering grace, I applied His precious blood to my sin, and I decided to leave it behind for real. When the Word comes to you, respond with faith. This era of grace it does not just bring salvation and keep us in a holding pattern until the Lord returns. That's not what it does. When you meet Christ, when He cancels your debts, when He sets you free from poverty and oppression and captivity and blindness, He calls us to go and preach the good news to the poor, to the blind, to the capti captives and the oppressed. You see, the ministry that Jesus began here in Luke's gospel, the church continued in Acts. Don't let familiarity and entitlement keep us in this boring, 
sort of selfish, entitled type of life. It's on the mission of God that we know His power. It's when we step out in faith to do these things, to be the bridge between eternal death and eternal life, to connect people with Christ, that we come alive. There's much to do. There's much to do. Through Him, we're to declare the year of Jubilee to the economically poor, those who are poor in our world, and to the spiritually poor, to the captives of human trafficking, and also people who are captive to consumerism, to those who are physically blind and disabled, and to those who are spiritually blind and disabled. We are called to these people. There's a person in your life right now, there's people in the, in the world that God's calling you to go and release from their captivity, to go and release from their spiritual poverty. And God wants our message, our proclamation of the word to be supported by love. This is what Luke emphasizes in Jesus' ministry, word and deed. And this is the ministry that God is using to overcome the spirit of the age. He's bringing light into darkness, that as we declare the year of the Lord's favor, until he comes, we will be blessed to stand with him and all those that he is gathering from all nations to worship him forever and ever and ever. I want to ask you to bow your heads and to consider if the Lord and his word has come to you today and you know that the Holy Spirit is stirring in your heart to respond in some kind of way. Don't miss it like they did in the synagogue. Respond with faith, even if it's painful. It's a gracious thing to be visited by God, to have Him draw near to you. I wonder this morning, have you been disappointed with Jesus? You've been living in a state of disappointment. Have you been disgruntled with him? Have you been presuming upon him to do what you want? Have you been so familiar that your sin doesn't matter anymore? Wherever you're at, let this word today result in your worship. Oh, sometimes it's painful to worship God. Sometimes it's painful, especially in the midst of disappointment, where in your heart you're just saying, is not this Joseph's son? What could Jesus really do for me? Sometimes it's painful to worship God. But Christ's work, when it comes, it does not disappoint. He is the promised one. He is the deliverer. He is the one that releases us from poverty. Spiritual blindness, spiritual captivity and oppression. He releases us. He does not disappoint. And so would you respond as the word comes out to you, whatever it is, even if it's painful, from your heart, you sing, oh Lord, I worship you, I praise you. Thank you for visiting me. Oh Lord, we want to end this sermon in worship. We want to praise your great and holy name. Lord, the spirit of the age has been in my heart. And I want to surrender the Holy Spirit. And I want to ask Him to take more control of my life. Attitudes. Apathy. Lord. Holy Spirit, would you come and reveal again, fresh to me, 
and fresh to my brothers and sisters here, the presence of the Lord Jesus who comforts those who are afflicted. every season you are God in every season you are God 